Flip with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is in the latter part of the Old Testament. He is one of the minor prophets. If you want to follow along there, you can. Jonah chapter 1. Uh, he comes after, he's around Amos and Obadiah there, and you can find it. Calling this message Descent. And next week's message will be called Death. And we'll go from there. <laughs> Let's pray. Um, our Father in God, we ask and pray that your Spirit would implant within us this day a burning desire to saturate the world with the justice and righteousness of God, that we would be relentless in our daily pursuits to um, participate in and further the kingdom of God. Help us not to descend into the abyss of selfishness and pride, rather aid us in ascending to Christ, our only hope, the one seated at your right hand. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're going to start this series in the book of Jonah today. And as far as I can tell, it'll probably be four weeks long. Uh, there are four chapters to the book. And while one could theoretically take four years to preach it, allocating one chapter per year, uh, that seems rather foolish. Uh, so we're not going to do that. Um, I want to start by just giving you a few things uh, to consider as a whole, especially Jonah as it pertains to biblical history. So, um, one, Jonah's name, by the way, in the book, Jonah's, other than Yahweh, God, the Lord God, um, Yahweh Elohim in Hebrew, um, other than that name, Jonah's name is the only one mentioned in the entire book, and his name means dove, which may or may not have some symbolism when you compare Jonah to Jesus and how Jesus, the dove, came, uh, the Spirit descended as a dove, like a dove, on Jesus in his baptism. Two, Jonah was from Gath Hafer in Zebulun, which is actually up by the Sea of Galilee. Jonah was told to go by land to Nineveh, and Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They were the superpower of the day, and that would have been well over 500 miles from his hometown. So that's how far he was told to go. Um, three, Jonah ministered circa 800 B.C. to 750 B.C. So just kind of put that on your, in, a, in, a, in a mental timeline there. Um, during his ministry, King Jeroboam II uh, restored Israel's borders. He stabilized the region. Um, Assyria was, again, the superpower at the time, but they had their attention elsewhere in the world. So during this time, um, the northern kingdom of Israel had experienced some level of respite and relaxation. They weren't under constant threat from others, at least not yet. Four, there are a couple of dates you should know, so put this on your timeline. The first is 722 B.C., 722 B.C. is when Assyria sacked Samaria and took Israel, the northern kingdom, captive. That was in 722. So if you put it right on your timeline, that was after the ministry of Jonah. Uh, Assyria uh, eventually fell to the Babylonians in 612 B.C. And then the southern kingdom of Israel fell in 586 B.C. So you can kind of just see this downward uh, problem <laughs> Um, with God's covenant people. So the reason that I say those things is it's important to know with the book of Jonah that Nineveh hadn't fallen yet. Nineveh, Nineveh was to fall, but it wasn't yet. So we're dealing with the time leading up to um, the northern kingdom's fall and destruction, and then, of course, later on, Nineveh would fall when the Babylonians would 
uh, come in and crush them and then make their way south to Judah, the southern kingdom. And lastly, um, Jonah ministered alongside the time frame roughly of Amos and Hosea, just to give you some biblical bearings on, on that time frame. So, Jonah as a book, it's important to know, is a literary genius of a book. There is no reason to take this as something other than historical fact. Um, some commentators will say, well, it's a pure story and, and that's all, but it's not. It's a historical, um, uh, it's an, a historical account. There are some allegorical slash, you know, type, anti-type, or symbolic interpretations of the book, and I think that can be warranted from the historical context, but again, those things need good and reasonable justification. Um, you know, uh, you can't just start making up things just because you think it sounds fun and symbolism. The book is, is four chapters. It's like a chiasm. Uh, if you're familiar with those, if not, here's basically what that means. Chapter 1, you have chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 go together. They tell the same exact scenario, basically. And then chapters 2 and 4 go together, and they are essentially saying the same thing. Uh, so it was a popular device. The prophets would use it all the time. It's sort of a, just a narrative device that writers would use. Uh, and that tells us a bit of what they're trying to say to us, how to interpret it, if we'll pay close attention. So, if you were to ask me what the purpose of Jonah is, here's what I would say to you. To challenge the people of God, Jonah's, Jonah's story, Jonah's book, is to challenge the people of God to think soberly about their calling to labor for the kingdom of God through the preaching and teaching of the word of God to the whole of creation. I think that's what the point is. So, again, to challenge people, to challenge us, to think about our calling, to labor in every facet of life in the kingdom of God for the greater purpose of taking the gospel to all of creation. Especially to those not like you, mind you. <laughs> of those who may be underprivileged or outcast or just plain pagan, as we'll see. See, God fashioned a people together for his glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, which means we now have a role to play in that endeavor. We're a part of this grand plan, like it or not. So that's not, that's from Habakkuk too, by the way. That's not just a coffee mug saying, <laughs> nor, of it, nor is it wishful thinking, okay? Yesterday when we were up speaking, I, I, I was thinking about this, like the Lord intends to do this. So if God intends to cover the earth with the knowledge of himself as the waters cover the sea, that's we're in that and we should act like that's true and that's where boldness and courage i believe can come from so no don't be like jonah be like jesus let's look at our text look at verse one and we're going to walk through verses one and two here the word of the lord came to jonah the son of amittai saying arise note that go to nineveh the great city and cry against it for their wickedness has come up from uh, come up before me. So unlike other prophetic books, um, which rely mostly on poetry, um, poetic denunciation, um, the prophets were like the best lawyers. They would come in and bring covenantal prosecution to Israel. These are your charges. This is why you're guilty. If you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. And that was kind of a normal motif for them. But Jonah is a narrative. It's different. 
We have some stories of the prophets doing weird things. Isaiah did some weird things without clothing. Um, Jeremiah hug, um, basically hid his underwear in a cleft of a rock. Um, Ezekiel did a weird thing where he had to lay on his side for quite a long time. Like weird things, but they were symbolic things. And they acted it out, essentially. So Jonah is kind of like that in, in the same sense. But the focus, though... And the other prophets is always God and, and his glory and repentance for sin and all these things. But Jonah, actually, the point of the story is Jonah. He's the focus in the story. We learn from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, that Jonah was an adamant supporter of Jeroboam II, uh, the king of northern Israel. He had um, what you might call a fervor about him towards nationalistic expectations. Uh, Assyria, of course, was an enemy at that time, but um, when you think about what God had asked Jonah to do, the fact that Jonah would be sent on a mission, this mission is absolutely scandalous. So if, if you're reading this after Jonah would have written, written this device, literary device, this masterpiece, and it would have circulated around Israel, and you get a copy and you're reading it, you're thinking, this is insanity. This is scandalous. Assyria was an enemy. Why would anybody want to go to be a missionary there? Um, a Hebrew prophet in a Gentile city. No way. Extend grace to people who want to injure us? Hardly. It's noteworthy that God told Jonah to arise. So note that. And we're going to see a pop-up here again. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down, note that, to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it, there's down again, by the way, with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Everything God said to do, Jonah did the exact opposite. <laughs> he was told to head up north and then east to Nineveh, but he went down south to Joppa to go west. Um, by the way, there's debate on the location of Tarshish. Say that 15 times fast. Um, some people think it was Spain. Uh, others think it was perhaps a place in Crete. Scholars are divided. We're not entirely sure, um, but that's not even really the point. Um, he was going far away. <laughs> Instead of making the journey by land, what did Jonah do? He hopped into a boat in the sea. The opposite. <laughs> Instead of making the journey by land, he went into the sea. Rather than going to the great city, Jonah went to the edge of the earth. And I'm not a flat earther, by the way. <laughs> Jonah's descent into rebellion is why he went down to Joppa and down into the boat. He's digging his own grave. Now, in Jonah's mind, he knew the problems of Nineveh. They were pretty bad. Assyria, historically, you can read all sorts of accounts on there. They were pretty nasty and cruel people. They would not treat people with dignity. There, were, there was no Geneva Convention stuff for them. You know, you, whatever you could do, you would do it to oppress others. But Nahum prophesied years before Jonah that God would destroy them. And no doubt Jonah knew this. And Jonah also knows that Israel is God's people. He's supposed to be faithful to them. Why is he trying to be faithful to a bunch of pagans who have done nothing but hurt others? 
why would he go to God's enemies who were set to be destroyed? Jonah also knew Deuteronomy, and he knew God's covenant sanctions. Clearly, God was mistaken in asking him to do this, and since God's orders were obviously misguided, Jonah exempted himself from obeying God, a habit we like to employ, frankly. Verse 4, the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Note two things. There, there was a great wind and a great storm. Jonah was told to go to the what city? The great city. So greatness is now going to doubly come his way. You won't go to the great city? I will send you a great storm, and I will send you a great wind as well. See, our disobedience is always and will always incur a stormy, murky situation every single time. But sometimes that's what God uses to bring us back. Sin is suicide. Righteousness is life. Instead of the boat sheltering and protecting Jonah like it had Noah, it will break apart in the flood of God's wrath. See, our own tendency towards pride and selfishness will break us down piece by piece, step by step, each and every time. Verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid of every man, and every, excuse me, became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Pay attention to this. That's why I called this sermon Descent. <laughs> But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. Now, the sailors are Phoenician pagans, all right? Uh, Jonah didn't want anything to do with the pagans, and here he is on a boat with pagans. Jonah is Israel, the sailors are Nineveh. Here's the story, right? Th this situation is going to tell us the meaning of later situation as well in due time. So notice that the sailors, the, the wind's coming, the storm's coming, and they're panicked, they're panicked, and they cry out in this act of desperation. They cry out to their God. Jonah is not crying out to his God. What is he doing? Taking a nap. He's sleeping and running away from his God. They're awake and crying out to their God. Jonah is sleeping and not saying a word. See, his, his descent is further and further towards Sheol, as we'll see in chapter 2 next time. Verse 6. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Jonah is told to arise again and serve the living God once again. This time he's told from a pagan who doesn't worship that God, at least not yet. See, the captain is concerned for the well-being of everyone, including Jonah. He's concerned about Jonah, while Jonah remains totally unconcerned about anyone else on the boat. His inward, um, his inward concern, his selfish concern, is causing outward harm, which is what happens every time. Number seven, verse seven, rather. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Uh, casting lots was a normal thing. Um, in our modern day, usually it's more like drawing straws or something like that. 
Um, but casting lots was a fairly normal thing in the ancient world. Everybody did it. It was abused by the pagans and their false gods. But Proverbs 16.33 says that every lot that's cast in the lap, its decision is from the Lord. So God's sovereign even over what we think is random. So providentially, the lot went straight to Jonah. Go figure. Everyone knows that Jonah is the problem except Jonah. Everyone in the story obeys the Lord except Jonah. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They should have probably did this initially, but they didn't care then. What do you do, Jonah? What's your purpose? Um, Where's your home? Who are you people? These are obviously great exploratory questions to ascertain the situation at hand while there's a giant storm happening. (laughs) See, Jonah knows that he's done wrong and they're trying to discover it. This is ironic given the fact that Jonah, Jonah knew what they had done wrong, not serve God, and he was told to go to them and point it out. He was told to go to the pagans and point out their sin, Now they're the ones pointing out his sin. The roles have been reversed. Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I'm in an act of disobedience, but darn it, I'm a card-carrying church member. I'm a Christian. (laughs) Note one thing, he put his nationality before his faith. I'm a Hebrew. And we don't have that problem today. We're Americans. America first. He put his nationality before his faith. This nationalistic fervor was embedded in Jonah. That's why he supported Jeroboam II. Like the Pharisees who claimed to be Abraham's children long before possessing the faith of Abraham, so Jonah's identity is misguided and presumptuous. His categories are defunct. He is a Hebrew, no doubt. He's not wrong in saying that. But what's more important here? Doesn't faith in the sovereign covenant Lord, whom he invokes, by the way, take priority over everything else, including borders and nations? See, unlike the pagan gods of the seas, Jonah confesses that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, created both the sea and the dry land. Again, Jonah was told to go to the dry land. He went to the sea. Now he has to confess, well, actually, maybe God's Lord of both. Well, he is. See, wherever he goes, Jonah's descent, each and every step of the way, goes further and further into self-destruction. But what, who is there every time? God is there, as we read in Psalm 139 there. Verse 10, Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. In other words, if you serve the creator God who made the land and the sea, who, who, who is in control of every molecule and atom, proton, neutrons, electrons included, if, 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 what in the world are you doing rebelling against this God? Note the hypocrisy. Jonah, Jonah claims that God made everything, rightfully, while in... While in the process of trying to find a place in creation where God's presence is not to be found. Well, what's the point? Well, God's presence isn't found only in Israel. His presence can be found in Nineveh too. 
Verse 11, So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy or tempestuous, the NRSV says. Jonah needs an atonement. He sinned, but what can they do? That's their question. Well, what, what, what is it we can do? Jonah, Jonah could stand up and finally come to the end of himself and, and, and plead with the God of heaven to try to use God's resources to help them. But Jonah can't even help himself right now, so he's coming up short. If you're not obedient, it's hard to help others be obedient. Um, think of it in terms of parent, parenting. <laughs> You're trying to correct a child sinfully. Uh, it's hard to do that. In other words, apart from the grace of God, Jonah is, you guessed it, utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up. This is his genius, <laughs> genius remark and answer. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. If, if the storm's there because Jonah's there, get him out of the boat. Jonah comes to this solution. Just toss me overboard. <laughs> Jonah's first act of responsibility is motivated not by a fear of God, but by a fear of man. The situation is dire. He's suddenly concerned about them, which is a picture of what he should have felt the day God said, get up and go preach to the Ninevites. But he didn't do that, of course. So Jonah offers himself. They might die because of Jonah's disobedience, so he'd rather die for them. After all, he's the problem. Again, ironically. Verse 13, However, the men rode desperately to return to land. They're very kind. But they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Instead of, instead of taking his advice, they tried to get back to sea. Just an FYI, ancient seafaring, they didn't go out from land too far, too much, um, especially leaving Joppa, which, by the way, is still a port today. But you could, um, they would basically hug the coast of Israel northward and then go west towards like, you know, Italy and Rome and other places at that point. So at any rate, the storm gets worse. God will bring Jonah to the absolute end of himself. Um, you're never really in a place of repentance until you're absolutely out of resources and at the end of yourself. Verse 14, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. See, the thing God wanted most, indeed the thing Jonah wanted least, was pagans calling on the name of God in repentance. Jonah, in all of his anti-missionary rebellion, he ends up accomplishing the very same thing that he refused to do, namely the conversion of Gentiles. Um, go, convert, go convert Nineveh. Jonah says, no, no, no thanks. Fine, run away and we'll convert some pagans in the storm in the midst of your rebellion. Do you want to flee from God? He's already there. He's already one step ahead every single time. See, Jonah didn't want the pagans to be blessed. He ended up blessing them anyway. But his sacrifice isn't ultimately significant. It can't be. Only Christ, the perfect lamb, can be, as we'll see shortly. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah. 
threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Um, as several commentators have noted, this isn't um, me being creative. It's pretty well agreed upon that Jonah is Israel. Jonah is a picture of Israel. He's a representative, a covenantal representative. And the sailors are, of course, a representative of, of the Ninevites as pagans. Um, God was about to, historically speaking, toss Israel and her beloved promised land into the sea of Assyrian judgment, which did happen in 722. So Israel had failed time and time again, and God was to deliver the payload of his purifying sanctions. But since he is a long-suffering and gracious God, he sent Jonah, that is Israel, to Nineveh, that is Assyria, in order to extend the blessing of repentance. But Jonah refused. Jonah is tossed into the sea. Jonah, Jonah illustrates the hard-heartedness of Israel during this time. They, Isaiah tells them to be light to the nations. They don't want to be. They reject that call. Um, they embrace the Canaanite practices and worship of their gods. They had essentially become Gentiles themselves. So Jonah tossed into the sea is actually Israel going into exile into Syria, which was going to happen eventually. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah fails each and every step of the way, and in his failure, the pagans fear the Lord God. It's astounding. It's a astounding story, shocking story. And lastly, kids, listen to this verse. You know this one. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. This big fish was to shelter Jonah. Okay, the fish is Assyria. God was going to use Assyria to shelter them, to bring them to repentance. Assyria was going to be a place of respite and protection while they were in captivity. Again, um, one writer, I pointed this out to me, I thought, that's actually, that's brilliant, suggests that later on the plant that God grows up to provide shade for Israel was Assyria, who was shading Israel from the son of God's wrath. So the fish, as we'll see next week, is also a place of death. So, just a few things. Jonah's rebellion, like all rebellion against God, is suicide. It's a descent towards Sheol, step by step, until you're at the gates of the place of the dead. Jonah's self-conscious decision to do the exact opposite of what the Lord called him to do would not be the undoing of Jonah, but it would actually be the very thing the Lord would use to accomplish his purposes, like it or not. I mean, how in the world could God... Take a man's stubborn refusal to obey God and his constant steps towards death and use that and even that as a way to glorify him and accomplish his plans. You think of um, Joseph sold into slavery, Jesus betrayed, and God brought it all out because, I mean, that's just the nature and purpose of, of God. So all of this would be Israel's undoing. God had shown himself in Scripture to be such a God. God uses the dirty and the murky, the befuddled and muddled, in order to advance his kingdom. That's what he does every single time. If we're not evidence of that, <laughs> of God's grace, and utilizing a bunch of boneheads, no offense, but that's what we are. I include myself in that. 
It's amazing. He uses the unrelenting sin of his people as a way to bring his beloved back to himself. Jonah's rejection of God would basically be a lesson on creational authority. The storm comes. Who's in charge of the storm? See, with or without Jonah, God will accomplish it. With or without Israel, God will accomplish it. With or without cross and crown, God will accomplish it. Jonah is Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. Now, I find it interesting that Jonah, he's told to arise um, in obedience, but he descends in disobedience. The word of the Lord came to him very clearly. God spoke to him, and yet he was quick to refuse. I mean, think about it. The, the, the revelation of the Lord God of the universe came to him, and Jonah choked. Jonah is not like the other prophets. He is marked by despair, so much so that he tries to sleep it off. Anyone felt so down and out that you thought, I just need to check out and sleep? That's Jonah. He is confused about his identity as things begin to unravel at sea. The water and the winds unravel. The boat is about to unravel, the text says, all because Jonah himself is unraveling. See, there are several things to consider in the interest of time, though. I'm, I'm just going to give you two. And the first one is this. What is the relationship between the church and the world? What is the relationship between the church and the world? Snobbery and superiority have no place in the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus was clear. If the salt loses its saltiness, it gets trampled. And frankly, the reason we're being railroaded by the humanists right now is because we have been disobedient. And listen, the answer isn't ever going to be, well, if only we'll just get back to singing the Psalms. That's not the answer, though that's a fine thing to do. And, and I'm enjoying my Trinity hymnal Psalter as of late. That's a fine thing to do. And the answer isn't, well, if we just get the pastors to wear robes again. <laughs> And if we just get worship right and, and tweaking it for hours and years on end, and, and maybe that'll be the key as if that's the only thing, and then it'll fall into place. And what we do here is strategic. It's purposeful. You know, we model our worship, at least in terms of our Sunday gathering, in terms of God's covenant, to be reminded of those things. But we don't think that that's the only thing we need to worry about. See, the problem here is that we're supposed to solve problems in the name of seeking justice and loving mercy, and by and large, we don't want anything to do with it. Why there weren't 4,000 Christians downtown yesterday, it's just further evidence. Um, fine, if you feel like you don't want to come because of the virus, so be it. But at some point, we probably should get on the same page with regarding our current predicament. But that, that was Jonah's problem, and it, it, frankly, it's our problem today. Not that, again, our worship shouldn't be pure and reverent towards God. All of life is worship, so sing with a pure heart at home, sing with a pure heart here. Gather with the church with a repentant heart. Leave and go to your families, to your households with a repentant heart, and feast on God's word Sunday through Saturday. Yes, amen. But until the church repents of her pietism, for example, the world will go largely unchanged. Until we're willing to get our hands dirty, the garden is going to be overrun by weeds. Deuteronomy 28 warns that when God's people fail to obey all of Christ for all of life, they will become the tail, not the head. Deuteronomy 28.13. In other words, 
the church will serve the world rather than the world serve Christ. So the truth is, yes, we've been tossed into the sea of the humanist religion and it's getting rather tempestuous. Law, politics, charity, and justice have all been abused and misused because the church wanted nothing to do with those things. Assyria was to collapse the northern kingdom of Israel for this very reason. Uh, Jordan, you pointed out Amos. And don't sing. If you're going to ignore justice, don't sing. (laughs) Isaiah says in Isaiah 1, I hate your solemn assemblies. Why? Because you don't care about the things that I care about. And the things I care about are the oppressed, the people whose businesses are being forced to close, whose livelihood is being destroyed, for example. See, when the church disobeys, the culture is shipwrecked. When the church obeys, the culture is transformed. When the church thinks and acts like the world, the culture takes the name that's imprinted upon her, the name of Jesus Christ, and attempts to annihilate it. Every single time. See, I can't help but see Jonah's descent into rebellion as being a picture of our descent into rebellion. Preborn babies are uninhibitedly aborted, and this goes largely unchallenged by ostensibly Christian pro-life you know, politicians and churchgoers. Local magistrates don't even understand interposition because no one has actually ever talked to them about it. Um, our conversation the other day with Sheriff Mosier was revealing in this matter. It's very revealing. This is but one issue out of a myriad of issues. So the fact remains, um, we look around, we know, we have descended into high-handed rebellion. How will we get out? Well, here's where I'm going to land the plane, as it were. Second thing, Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus is greater than Jonah. The parallels are striking. Think of this. Jonah slept on a boat, as did Jesus on the boat in Galilee. By the way, Jonah's hometown area. For Jonah, the chaos of the storm was not a mere natural phenomenon. The storms enraged because they obeyed God's command. For Jesus, the winds and waters were calmed at his command. Jonah slept as a man who was plagued by guilt. Jesus slept as a man who was pure and righteous. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh so they would repent. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem where they would not repent, and of course he would die as a result. Jesus, like Jonah, went to Sheol. As one writer has said, the tomb is the fish. Yet Jesus came out in an actual resurrection. By the way, just to tip my hat, I do think Jonah died. I think he was resuscitated. Three days and three nights is a is fairly well ancient um, a way of describing someone who is now cleared for death and burial. That sort of thing. Um, and I was telling Eli this the other day, but uh, Jesus... Uh, because of the holy day, the Passover, you know, they got to be righteous and get him off the cross. We don't want the corpse to be on the cross. So they stabbed him to make sure he was dead. And sure enough, he was buried. That's not normal protocol. So Jonah was supposed to go. He didn't. Jesus went. When Jesus said in Matthew twelve forty, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was drawing the conclusion that the greater Jonah sent to the world to advance the kingdom and bring the great cities of man to their knees is now here. The sign was the fish for Jonah. 
the tomb for Christ. In other words, Jonah's death, and again, I, I think he died. Others think that. Some disagree, but it's okay. We don't have to throw stones at each other. Um, Jonah's death wasn't sufficient, even if we throw death like this. It wasn't sufficient for any sort of atonement. It was a pointer to Christ, who is the antitype. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders explaining his ministry, and he essentially told them, the Pharisees and Sadducees and so on, your rebellion is just like Jonah and Israel then. That's what he's saying in the passage we uh, read from Matthew 12. You're the same type. You are, that's you. They hadn't learned the lesson of Jonah. Grace is given to you so you can dispense it to others, including and especially the Gentiles. Nineveh repented. They would not. Will they being the Pharisees, will they repent when they see an empty tomb? Here's a step further. Will they go into the tomb, the Holy of Holies, with Christ, take on his atoning death, and be set free from their sin? And will you? At every turn, Jonah descended. What did Christ do? He descended to our pitiful state in order to ascend to glory. This is the heart of the gospel message. Christ stooped low, immersing us in a sea of his sin-atoning death. By the way, the blood and the water only to restore to us the image and likeness of God. Like Jonah, Adam and Eve had chosen to question the commands of God in order to justify their lust for rebellion. Jesus is the second Adam who obeyed the commands of God to justify us. In Christ, we are created to create, restored to restore, justified to seek justice, and declare righteousness in order to labor we're declared righteous in order to labor for righteousness. That's the catch. G Jonah descended. Jesus Christ ascended. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, there's so much in this text, and I, and I do pray that you um, would use it to magnify your son, that we would take the message of Jonah and see it the way Jesus saw it and, and see it the way that the Pharisees didn't. We don't want to miss the truth of your intentions to proclaim the captives free, um, to, to legitimately proclaim a gospel that encompasses justice and mercy and faith. The weightier matters, as Jesus calls it. So, Father, in our efforts here as a church and our efforts individually as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as business owners and workers and laborers, and people who are called into this glorious covenant, I just pray your blessing that we would be faithful and not descend, but ascend to the throne. And it's Christ's precious name that I pray this. Amen. Amen.